Yo, this episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by Dunlop Super Bright Bass Strings. Dunlop Super Bright Bass Strings put your sound front and center with a bright yet musical top end, balanced fundamental, and a warm low end. Designed from the ground up to fit the vision of what a string should be, Super Bright Bass Strings provide a superior response that allows the natural voice of your bass to come through. Made in California at Dunlop headquarters, go to jimdunlop.com and check out Super Bright Bass Strings. Hello, my friends and bass freaks. Welcome to Bass Freaks presented by Dunlop. Are you a bass freak? If so, you are in the right place. This is a spot for us bass players to chat it up and inspire one another. Have some fun. I am your host, Josh Paul. And today, we welcome a very special guest, the legendary Mr. Hutch Hutchinson. Round of applause. How are you, man? I'm good, man. I'm over here on Maui uh, digging the rays. So anyway, it's nice and nice. It's a nice place to be during the pandemic, but I've been back and forth a couple of times. So up until I let tourists in again, there was virtually no virus here. And uh, I have a lot of musician friends here. So it was uh, a fun place to be actually. Uh, Who's, who's near you? Who are you playing with while you're at home? Over here? Yeah. My neighbor uh, right up the block is Pat Simmons, who's the leader and founder and most constant member of the Doobie Brothers and uh, and Michael McDonald has a place in the neighborhood. And Willie Nelson's been in Texas, but he's a presence here and has been since the early 80s. And uh, McFleetwood, of course, is here. He's also been here for a couple of days. Steven Tyler and quite a, quite a few illuminaries. But, um, you know, everybody sort of gets together now and then. I'm sort of more of the Doobie Ohana, as they say. So I play with Mike and Pat and Dave Mason, former member of Traffic, who wrote Feeling All Right and all those tunes. And he's over here and loves it. And uh, Paul Simon's here as well with his wife, Edie Burkell. So there are a lot of other great musicians in Hawaii. Uh, it's sort of, Hawaii's sort of like New Orleans, whereas I think musicians sort of are some, the local guys are really sort of fearless and are willing to pick up any instrument at the blink of an eye and uh, play something great. I think New Orleans is like that too. Music is part of the culture. Whereas music is just some places it's something you listen to in the background or your parents listen to or you grew up wanting to do. But I think over certain cities, certain places, certain cultures, it's it's like eating breakfast. You know, you do it every day. It's, so, uh, it's really that's really a beautiful thing. I mean, it's a, it's just universal. And I really do appreciate the fearlessness of the locals there. I mean, you're in some great company. I mean, you're on Hawaii or on Maui and having fun and in the, I would say, paradise, really. I, I, if you're unfamiliar with Hutch, he's a, a fellow bassist that has a ridiculous resume. I mean, from working with l- little tiny artists like Bonnie Raitt to Ryan Adams and Brian Adams to B.B. King. I think you played on, what, a couple million albums and maybe like two that um, nobody's heard of but knows, you know a lot you know i started young and kept at it so uh and i think back when i started when i was a teen i wanted to make records and i, I don't think a lot of people were sort of they i don't think a lot of people aspired to that being a studio musician wasn't really something that people were aware of even i mean there's you really had to there weren't a lot of people doing it back then so i sort of 
walked into it in an early age in my mid-teens and started making records. Like my buddy Bob, Bob Glob and a few other guys. Hey, who were, so sort of we were directed. So I think we had, I don't know, we had ideals and dreams and we sort of followed through. And we were lucky enough to be in the right places at the right time. Having people mentor us like Lee Sklar and for me, George Porter and, um, you know, a number of other bass players. Even like Tony Levin, who's from sort of my hood when I was growing up and a number of other people. So it's, uh, it was, I've been blessed in that way. I think. That is so crazy. What, uh, why bass? I had played, I played mandolin and guitar when I was a preteen. Bluegrass was really sort of happening and the blues, it was sort of the, the mid sixties, the sort of folk revival of the late fifties. My mother was big time into that. So uh, there were there were a lot of Bill, a lot of Bill Monroe records and uh, uh, Pete Seeger records and um, Arlo Guthrie. Who I, I was about the same age. He's a little older, but I mean, I was in this scene in Boston and Cambridge, especially where there was a, a div- diversity of music and culture that I don't think people would have had in many other places in the U.S. at that time. Now, of course, you can go online and gain access to these forms and and um, different uh, cultures from around the world. And um, I think back then you didn't have it. You had to really seek it out. If you wanted to listen to a chess record, you want to listen to Muddy, you wanted to listen to anything, Gabby Pahanui from Hawaii, you really had to search it out. It's funny, Ry Cooter is big, who I've had the pleasure of working with a number of times over the years. And he and I will talk about this. I remember when he was going to Cuba to do the uh, Grammy-winning Buena Vista Social Club project. Yes. Here, we were both in Ocean Way and I ran into him in the lobby and he said he was heading down to Cuba to record these guys. And I was familiar with a lot of the more contemporary uh, Los Van Van uh, and uh, La Banda were bands back then that were sort of changing the face of Latin music. And I think, which I had a fair amount of exposure to and I'd worked in that world. I lived in Latin America for a while, but Rye was into tracking down these musicians who were popular in the 1930s and 1940s, which who really influenced everything that came after them as far as Latin culture and Latin music goes. So they created that that world, as well as the New Cats in New York. But Rye, I think it was, he's of that ilk. And like ta- my friend Taj Mahal, same way. I think they looked for forms and they looked for artists who had influenced generations of musicians. And uh, whether they're known today or not, I think that was, they felt also that was part of their, their life path was to make these, make other musicians aware and make our culture aware of these different artists. So it's very important. Uh, like basically the Beatles with Little Richard or a lot of younger country artists with Willie and Merle and Waylon and these people, you know, or even rock artists. I mean, going back to whether it's rockabilly or metal or whatever, there are people who preceded you going back 30, 40 years, maybe 50, 60, 70 years. And, um, you know, you need to be aware of those people, I think, if you're a younger musician coming up because they influence the people that influenced you. Right. And it also helps the, um, I guess, your versatility. And oh, if you, in if a you big way. Do this, yeah. Not only to be a uh, well-rounded musician, but human being as well. I think that when you when you study different music and you're exposed to it, um, it really broadens your cultural sort of um, empathy and, it's, and knowledge. 
Very true. And I think more people, not just musicians, should be, uh, and especially Americans, I think only 40-something percent of Americans even hold passports. So I think, uh, I think it's important to experience different cultures. And, and for me, I was sort of lucky because as opposed to just listening to stuff, I actually got to work in Central America and South America. I actually ended up working in Australia and I actually ended up working in the West Indies. I worked at Compass Point a lot, which was Chris Blackwell's studio in the Bahamas where he recorded Toots and the Maytals and uh, Bob Marley and so many other artists. But he also recorded ACDC and Steve Winwood and so many rock artists in the same studio. So, I mean, just for me to physically go and be part of these cultures and uh, having the opportunity to work with anybody from B.B. King to, this, you know, the same month work with B.B. King, the Chieftains, Ziggy Marley, Garth Brooks, completely different cultures, completely different, same notes, I mean, <laughs> but as far as culturally and, and musically, completely different, the world's apart, you know, so um, that, that's, a, that's a blessing and a privilege, but also if those opportunities arise as a younger musician, I think one needs to be prepared for them. So one needs big ears and need to be able to accept different forms and understand because we only have so many notes to work with. So it's really about how people utilize and play those notes as far as rhythmically and melodically, sonically in general. And I think uh, in order to be prepared for those moments in one's life, especially if one's a studio musician, one needs to be exposed and, and open to these forms. And uh, there were certain types of music I, when I was a teenager, I know I'll never play this. I, I don't even appreciate it. <laughs> and as I got older and went to these places, I learned to love it. So certain things I wasn't even open to when I was 16 or 17. Later on, 20 years later, I was going, oh man, this is great. I love this record. And I immersed myself in it. And I think that prepared me for all of these different opportunities uh, and whether it would even film scores, I mean, things like this or TV themes or whatever, you know, I just did a, a track. It's for a, a show called, um, God, uh, money heist. Okay. And, uh, it's a big show on Netflix. And yeah. I've seen, I've seen yeah, it. And so we did a new score for that and, and, um, it's all Latin based. It's really Italian based. The, the scene, the title theme, the theme song, it's an old Italian song, and the, it's funny. I thought it, it was a huge song in Spain, and the, the guitarist on this, the session, Diego Garcia, this was actually the last recording session I did before the pandemic. So it was like March 6th of 2020. I, we did it at Village Recorders in Santa Monica. Great band, top-notch band. And, but Diego grew up in Spain. And I said, uh, oh, do you know this song? And he said, oh, yeah, everyone in Spain knows this song. And I said, really? He said, this was the song during the Spanish Civil War before World War II that, that the um, partisan, that the um, non-Republican troops, the, um, the freedom fighters would sing going into battle. This was uh, an amazing thing to me because I didn't have it, realize it had any historical or social relevance in that way. It was just sort of a... Uh, an Italian polka to me, and he said, no, that was a heavy song because it was about leaving your family and your woman behind and going to fight in the war. 
So, I mean, it's great finding these things out and researching them. And it's great that a guitarist on the date from Spain hit me to this fact. Well, it was before I tracked the song because it, whereas if you listen, it sort of sounds like a light, you know, Italian, we'll have a glass of Chianti and some pasta here. It's like type of thing, but it's not that at all. It's a much more heavy song. Man, that is awesome. Yeah. Um, so tell us about your first, so from your first pro gig, what was, which one was it? My first pro gig? Yeah, as a, um, as a professional musician. Well, I mean, that's sort of hard to say because I, 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 my mom passed away about 14 years ago. And I I'm sorry got to, hear to spend, a, I am, that happens. But, and she lived a long life and she was a brilliant woman. She worked for NASA. She was a physicist and an engineer and sort of worked for IBM in the 40s. So she worked on some of the first satellites and worked at MIT on guidance and control systems computers for the Apollo project. So I was uh, sort of wow. immersed in that world. Actually, when I told her I wanted to become a musician, that was physics was my fallback career. So it was really? like she said, you can always come back here. I'll give you two years to get a record deal or accomplish something. And uh, otherwise, you have to come back here and get a, either a teaching degree in music or work with me at the labs at MIT. And because, because math and music were always tied together for me. And so, in hand, right. So I, um, and a lot of her co-workers actually played music, you know, on the side, whether it was jazz or bluegrass or whatever. So um, anyway, prior to that, I, I'd started, I, so I got to spend time with my mom and I remember, you know, doing a lot of gigs. I was in a band in Boston and I was 12 years old, wow. 12 to 14 years old. And I was making money while friends of mine were bagging groceries. And you were playing and bass. I was making, yeah, playing bass, making, I'd started playing, you know, acoustic guitar, mandolin, started studying cello in school, uh, playing double bass, studied with a great teacher in Boston uh, who played with the Boston Symphony for half a century. Um, and then I saw Wilson Pickett when I was young and, and a couple of other bands and at uh, matinee performances. Uh, 65, I was 12 years old, so I saw... Wilson, but his band at that time uh, was comprised. Jimi Hendrix was playing guitar. He was one of the two guitar players. And Billy Cox, later to play with Hendrix and Band of Gypsies, were yeah. in Wilson's band at the time. And uh, I, I was right at the foot of the stage, right in front of those guys. And I didn't realize later, of course, Hendrix wasn't a commodity then. So we didn't. it was two years before the first Hendrix album was released. So um, it was, but it's still seeing them up close and with Wilson, who I got to play with a lot later in life, um, a fair amount later in life, record with and play a couple of gigs with. Um, it was, uh, it was a big day. So I went to my mom, I needed, I needed an electric bass. I mean, that was it. So uh, later on that year, I saw Howlin' Wolf at a place in Cambridge uh, called Club 47, which is now called Passim. Uh, I was on the street. I couldn't get in the club. I was just looking through a basement window watching the band. And um, I, uh, anyway, wanted an Ampeg B-15 and a, and a Gibson EBO, just like his guys. So I, I ended up getting, I still have the EBO and I still have the B-15. So, ah. But I, the band I was in, we ended up winning, WBCN is the, still like one of the big rock stations in Boston. And, and they had a sort of battle of the bands and we won the battle of the bands and, the um of course he did 
Of course. We <laughs> uh, actually, the drummer, great drummer, which, you know, we depend on as bassists. So, I mean, it's like, yes. the, you know, drummer helps us sound good mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you've, played with, you've played with some of the best. Uh, I was reading. Man. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, this band, when we won, our, our, one of the prizes was we got to open for a couple of bands in the Boston area. One of the bands was Vanilla Fudge, which Tim Bo- of which Tim Bogart was the bass player and uh, Carmine uh, on drums. And um, and the other band was the Yardbirds. And I was 12 years old, 13 years old. And I, it really was an amazing thing for me to be opening on a concert with a band like that because I loved the Yardbirds at the time. I couldn't believe right. it. We also opened for Moby Grape. So I was, that's before I was a teenager. You know, that's insane. And, uh, that it is- was a big deal. Yeah. I was very precocious and uh, <laughs> musically and otherwise. And um, so it worked out, you know, but it, it sort of, inst- it get, I, I caught the bug, so to speak, I think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wanted to, uh, I, w- I decided I wanted to do it professionally. And my mom was supportive. The male members of my family, not so much so. But um, that's yeah. not a real job. Yeah, totally. I yeah. think, uh, you know, that's that's the way things you know, were then. Man, I I was fortunate in the fact that I never had that. My whole family, from the time I was very, very young, like seven years old, mm-hmm. um, they were always supportive. My grandfather played every instrument there is, and he encouraged me to play the instruments. As long as I treated them with respect, I can and, make as much noise as I wanted. And uh, that was in Southern California? It was, yeah, L.A., and did he play professionally, your grandfather? My grandfather did. He 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 had a Dixieland band. Oh, he fantastic. Also, yeah, he played yeah. clarinet, bass, guitar. Fantastic. Yeah. Sax. Well, um, which was which was common back then. I mean, yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I lived in New Orleans for a long time. I had family on the Gulf and my the fan, sort of family presence there. And, uh, you know, I played with the Neville Brothers for years when they first started right. out and I worked with Alan Toussaint and, you know, Dr. John and, you know, a lot of great R&B singers, Ernie Cato, um, Lee Dorsey, uh, Jesse Hill, Earl King. Um, and down there, I think, uh, especially in New Orleans, they, a lot of the older cats, they, they really pointed out to me that, you know, back in the day, genres were really created in the 1950s and 60s by writers, so back in the 30s, 20s, when Dixieland jazz blues, the cats who were playing music didn't really look at those gigs, those forms, those genres as being all that different. I mean, they, it was all music. It's all like Duke, music. Duke Ellington's favorite, you know, famous quote of, you know, there are two kinds of music, good and bad. You know? and, uh, <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. That. And that's how I think a musician should should approach playing when doing what we do i mean you really need to be open to these different forms as we were saying earlier i think I that's com- so so important you know I, I completely agree so give me your best gig and your worst gig you don't have to name names mm. best gigs are like you know all gigs are good but i mean you have better gigs some are better than others uh you have favorite gigs i mean i still I think my first big, big gig was here in Hawaii. It was uh, in Diamond Head Crater. Oh, beautiful. 40,000 people on New Year's Day of 1973. So uh, we did sound check 
midnight on New Year's. So mid, right at mid stroke of midnight was our sound check. It was with Santana and a band called Copperhead that I was in. And I believe it was a, a band that later became Journey. It was. Oh, wow. It was Neil Schoen and Greg Raleigh and my friend Pete Sears on bass. Okay. He's played with numerous people and Pete keyboard and bass and uh, Greg Arico from Sly and the Family Stone on drums. But it was basically Neil and Greg. So that was, you know, what later became the early Journey band. And uh, they were, of course, remnants. They were both from Santana's band. On yeah. A few records prior to that. So it was an amazing thing because I'd never played a gig that large. And it was in Diamond Head Crater, and I was here in Hawaii. And uh, I'd been in another band a couple of years prior called Lucky Mud, which is a line from a Kurt Vonnegut novel, and um, a phrase from a Kurt Vonnegut novel. But they had been here, and they had opened for Hendrix at the HIC, which is now the Blaisdell Arena here in Hawaii. Uh, they did two nights, 1970, just before he played here on Maui and Rainbow Bridge. And uh, one of his last gigs, he died in that, I think the gig, that gig was in July. I think he passed away that September. But uh, people say, were you in the band then? And I go, no, I joined the month after they opened for Hendrix. But I think when they opened for Hendrix, I was just out of high school. So uh, gotcha. but I was lucky to get in the band at that point. And they brought me to the Bay Area, brought me to Santa Cruz. You know, I had a, a great experience. But they just released the record we did 30 years ago. So it's a pretty cool record. Oh, really? Yeah. Can't, where, really, can people, where can people get that? I think they should look online for The band was called Lucky Mud. My okay. guitar player ended up, uh, guitarist Angelo Rossi went up on to join uh, Pablo Cruz and a few other bands that had some success. And the drummer, Ken Corday, who actually financed this recent project of re, uh, releasing this record that we cut at Ocean Way in L.A. 30 years ago, um, he's the executive producer of Days of Our Lives and the owner of the show. Wow. Hence the budget. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you really need to write a book. Seriously. I've been, t I still need to work before I write the book. No, I, mean, I, I have you. other stories I'm not going to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So um, let's talk about um, 2020. It's been an interesting yeah. last year with the whole pandemic. Um, how are you doing? How, how are you surviving the pandemic as I'm a musician, as a human being? I'm doing great, actually. You know, I've done, I've talked about that. And I just did a thing for uh, NPR, uh, all things considered, doing interviews with different musicians, talking about how you, how you made it through the pandemic, basically. I think it's called Stuck at Home. Uh, Dave Lawrence, who's a, um, one of the NPR anchors here in Hawaii, was doing it for their National Archive. And uh, they interviewed everyone from Alice Cooper to Steve Morris and you know, from Deep Purple and, uh, you know, a lot of other musicians of varying genres and uh, the Wilson sisters and all these people. And I think everybody, I think, you know, what I said early on when I did a thing for Bass Magazine online. And um, anyway, I, I talked about how creative people need to create. I mean, it's sort of part of our DNA. And if we don't have the opportunity or create the opportunities to do that, then we're, we're lesser for it. We, and we start having issues sometimes because I think I know that playing music helped me get through my teen years in a big way. Uh, you know, there's a, 
a woman over here with her husband, she's, uh, I went to high school with her. She said, God, you were so quiet in high school. And he said, that's because I thought I was going to get beat up all the time. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> I wasn't on the football team. I was playing bass and I wanted to be a studio musician. I mean, it's like people were like, he's, he's crazy, isn't he? So, so. But anyway, I think um, that's why we need inherently to, to create and play music and write or do whatever we like to do as far as the creative person. And I, uh, I and so I set up a studio here on Maui, which I'd never had, and, you know, in one of the back rooms in a back bedroom. And um, and I also a lot of my friends here, Pat Simmons, I did some tracks for him and I was so sending tracks to Nashville and London and Ireland and Boston and uh, a lot of which are online now. My friend Gary Nicholson, who's a producer in Nashville, had me play on a bunch of stuff. My friend Holly Lursky in the UK, we had a song called Home Is My Shoulder. If you go to YouTube and look up Holly Lursky, Home Is My Shoulder, it's an amazing video. It's drone footage of San Francisco uh, during the first lockdown. So it's an empty city of San Francisco. You'll see uh, a... uh, mural of Greta Thunberg is on the uh, first first and it's in the first shot it's beautiful. anyway so That's it was beautiful. great being able to work remotely with people uh also Sorry. you know a couple of friends we barely had any COVID here we had a couple of cases a month so okay. because nobody was coming in or out really so uh I was able to go to some friends studios and work a bit and uh, played on a couple of tracks for people over here but so you, really sending tracks to people in other other places and uh, learning how to do home videos for these composite things. And, you're staying uh, busy, man. Staying That's busy, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Also planning with Bonnie to uh, we're we're going to be recording a new record shortly. I mean, she's she's big on she could always go out and tour on her past catalog, which is huge. Yeah. And um, but the thing and we could still we still sell large venues. I mean. We toured as a package with James Taylor. So, I mean, we've been preparing. Things were canceled. We were supposed to tour Canada in April of 2020, April, May. Uh, mm-hmm. That's been postponed. That was postponed till this September and October. Uh, we're doing a lot of make updates later in the year. So, and we're starting to record in late May. And uh, so, we're, prep, you know, we've been prepping all that stuff. That's great. So, yeah. Well, man, I, I, I'm just in awe of your plane and well uh, thank you man your your resume it's, it's ridiculous it's i see you man much love to you bud i hope thank you, actually brother. we get to hang you know we'll be playing with each other before long but there's a light at the end of this tunnel and i think we're, we're it'll be it'll be like turning on a light basically once this happens things will change dramatically quickly if everybody's responsible and does the right thing i 100 percent agree Oh. But I got a, I got a couple um, rapid fire questions. Whoa. Cool. Are we ready? Yes. Te- text or call? Uh, text. Okay. Active or passive? Oh God, depends on the situation. Can yeah. I say that sort of? Good answer. That's sort of a non-answer. All right. <laughs> Fuzz or overdrive? Overdrive. Okay. Dunlop streams or Dunlop streams? <laughs> of course. MXRFX or MXRFX. Yeah, exactly. Can I, can I go there for a minute? This isn't product Please. placement. But my first, okay, here I am with a base chorus deluxe, which is great, which is an amazing little unit, I think. 
And uh, but my first chorus, my first effect of any sort was a phase 45 when they first came out in the early 1970s uh, with the old sort of English traditional script on it. You know, it's, it wasn't as industrial looking as it has been for years. And uh, that sort of changed the way I approached the instrument. I mean, effects can for the right in the right situation can really uh, enhance whatever you're doing in a big way, especially the track. So on Bonnie's Make of Time record, later on, so cut, it's 1973-74, I get the phase 45, I get the phase 90. Then the, the big yellow chorus comes out. Man, I used that on everything. People were like, can't you please turn that off for a minute? And I would, <laughs> split, I would split the signal. I'd run into two different amps, but I mean... One amp always had the chorus on it to some extent or another. So when I did Bonnie's Nick of Time record, I actually went in 1988 and swept the Grammys in 89, which was really 90. And uh, on three of those, three of the better tracks, my favorites on that record, I actually ran an MXR chorus through a polytone and then went direct. So the amp tone, which is a little overdriven, actually has an MXR chorus as what, uh, all the time. I mean, I just, I live for these things. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in. No, I love it. That's sort of awesome. Dude, I really want to thank you. Like I said earlier, I am in awe. I would love to do this again. Um, thank you all base freaks for listening in. Stay healthy, stay kind, spread love and good vibes and inspiration. And remember you got this, follow your path and just play. (laughs) 